So we come to the end of this incredibly beautiful sermon. Not my sermon in particular. <laughs> the sermon we've been studying. Last Sunday I get to say this. Greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest teacher who ever lived. I hope you've fallen in love with it the way we have as we've been teaching it to you. You know, this is that part of Scripture that is known by many people, skeptics and unbelievers alike, because there's so much in it that is beautifully said, accepted by so many as self-evident truth. Blessed are the merciful. Love your enemies. Judge not lest you be judged. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Turn the other cheek. Give the coat off your back. Go the extra mile. These have all become axioms universally. Many would say today that this is the pure Jesus, the unadulterated Jesus before the founders of this religion called Christianity got a hold of him and added legend and dogma on top. Many would say that this is the real Jesus, just a simple teacher who taught us how to do good and to love one another. But people that hold that make two mistakes. The first mistake is about the content of the sermon itself. These are not just statements of wisdom that we can apply to everyone. This is Jesus' manifesto. This is the radical counterculture called the kingdom of heaven and he is calling us to a radical choice that is the difference between eternal life and eternal death. But the second is understanding the teacher, underestimating even what this sermon reveals about the author himself. And so we're going to today wrap up by tracing through this sermon and looking at what it is that we can learn, what is revealed about Jesus himself. And we start at the end, Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 28. The sermon is now concluded. Jesus has ended with the parable of the wise and the foolish builder. Wise simply because they built their life on the teachings that embody the Sermon on the Mount. Foolish because they don't put it into practice and great is their fall. This is the summation of the whole sermon. And then this response by the people. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as teachers of the law. They were amazed. It's the reaction of the crowd that we want to pay attention to. They are not saying, what do you think about this awesome teaching? They're thinking, what do you think about Jesus? They were amazed at him because of his teaching. The word amazed there means dumbfounded or gobstruck. That kind of reaction that so takes you out of your assumptions that it caused you to step back and be speechless. This is no small word. Matthew wants us to understand that what was revealed, not just about the kingdom of God, but about Jesus himself, was so powerful that people were struck speechless by it. And then when Matthew explains why, he says they were dumbfounded because 
he taught with authority. It was the authority of Jesus as he taught that was the central thing that caught them. John Stott suggests seven things that the Sermon on the Mount reveals about the authority of Jesus, and we're going to work through those today. The first thing that he talks about is Jesus' authority as the teacher. They were astonished at his teaching, it says. He taught as one with authority. There were thousands of other teachers. What was special about Jesus? Well, this is what I would say. Jesus assumed the right to teach absolute truth. He talked about who was great and least in God's kingdom. He pronounced who was blessed and who was not to be blessed. Which way in life led to life and which led to destruction? Who would inherit the kingdom? Who would obtain mercy? Who would see God? He goes on and says, he spoke with authority and not as the scribes. The second thing about him as teachers that Jesus spoke of his own authority. You see, the scribes never spoke out of their own authority. They interpreted the Old Testament through centuries of commentary and tradition. No new truth. That wasn't Jesus. I heard one commentator put it this way. The scribes spoke by authority. Jesus spoke with authority. Jesus separated himself not just from the modern scribes, but from the ancient prophets. The prophets spoke with the phrase, thus says the Lord. In other words, a prophet in the Old Testament spoke for the Lord, but not out of himself. Did Jesus once in the Sermon on the Mount say, thus saith the Lord? No, what was the common expression that Jesus said at least 12 times in the Sermon on the Mount? What? Yes, I say to you. He spoke as the one who was bringing the eternal truth. And then finally, Jesus presented his teaching as the one true foundation for our lives. That's how he ended the sermon. Your life will be destroyed if you don't listen to my words and don't put them into action. If you listen to my words and put them into action, you will stand in life's storms. The second thing that we can see about Jesus is his authority as the Christ. Now, it's important that you recognize that Jesus nowhere in the sermon declares these things about himself. But it's very easy to understand that they are just assumed. It would be like if you met our president for the very first time and didn't know he was the president of the United States and he didn't necessarily feel a need to tell you that. And he's just talking about how he's thinking about pulling military back here or there or bringing the Joint Chiefs of Staff together and working on this social issue and directing Congress to do this. You don't have to say I'm the president for you to know that he is. He just talks like a president does. It's that way with Jesus. Jesus had no need to try to pronounce who he was or defend who he was. He just was who he was. And as we hear his words, we see these things. First, his authority as a teacher. Second, as the Christ. Jesus knew that he had come on a mission. He said, I have 
come. Elsewhere, he said, I have been sent. He says, I did not come to end the law or eradicate the law, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. Stott says he did not think of himself as another prophet or the greatest prophet, but rather as the fulfillment of all prophecy. And this is key. In teaching that he was the fulfillment of all prophecy, he was saying that he is the long-sought fulfillment of the hope of the Jewish people. He is the Messiah. Remember the first recorded words of his public ministry, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Remember our theme verse that we've taken for this last year from Luke chapter four. Let's say that together. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then after he read this messianic prophecy, he closed the scroll, he set it down, and he said, today this has been fulfilled in your midst. It was that declaration that precedes this great sermon through which Jesus explains what the kingdom of God looks like and what the people of the kingdom look like. It's very clear that the sermon itself reveals Jesus' authority as the Christ. The third area is that we see Jesus' authority as the Lord. Now, It's fair to suggest that the Greek word for Lord is applied on various levels. You can refer to someone as Lord simply out of respect for their place of honor. You can refer to them as Lord simply because they have some position over you. Then there is Lord as in title, and then there is Lord, Lord, which is like King of Kings, the Lord above all lords. And this is who Jesus very casually claimed to be when he said, in the day of judgment, many will come before me and say, Lord, Lord. Jesus presents himself as our eternal Lord and Master. And he claimed that he would be given full authority over the kingdom of heaven. Look with me in the Gospel of Mark. Verse 35 of chapter 12. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, how is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son. The teachers of the law believe the Messiah would be a descendant of David, the son of David. And by the way, Jesus was a son of David. He did fulfill that. But what he's saying is that even David knew that the Messiah that would come would be more than merely his offspring. He would also be his Lord, that all things would be brought under him. So the Sermon on the Mount reveals to us that there is a kingdom that there is a kingdom that God calls all of us into, that he transforms us into as blessed people, so we are citizens of that kingdom, and then make no mistake, Jesus is large and in charge of that kingdom. Fourth, we see Jesus' authority as savior. 
the Beatitudes help us see Jesus in his role as one who confirms blessedness on people and gives the kingdom as the savior of the poor. Not long after this sermon in chapter 9, verses 2 and 6, Jesus claimed authority to forgive sin. In verse 12, Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so make no mistake, Jesus reveals himself as the savior of the human race. The fifth thing that Jesus reveals about himself is his authority as the judge. This was one of the more startling aspects of the sermon. Go back with me to Matthew 7. We'll begin reading at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoer. There are three statements that help us understand that Jesus is the judge of the human race. The first is when he says, many will say to me. And what that tells us is that Jesus, like any judge, will hear the evidence of our lives. Many will come before me and they will say, Lord, Lord, I did this and I did that in your name. Don't I deserve entry into your kingdom? And then I will tell them, he goes on and says, and that helps us see the judge that will pronounce the verdict. I will tell them. And then the third statement, depart from me. The judge will pass sentence. Depart from me, I never knew you. Jesus sees himself in that role. Make no mistake about it. It would be very hard to accept just that little bit of teaching and think that these words came from just a really good teacher. C.S. Lewis points out that reason doesn't give us that option. Someone that thinks he'll sit on the throne of the universe and judge the whole human race has at best a God complex. Not a humble person, not a wise teacher. In fact, what we're left with when we see Jesus claims for himself, which actually are going to become even stronger as we get to the last two, is what Lewis says, well, either Jesus was right about who he claims to be or he's wrong. If he's right, well, (laughs) then do business with him. If he's wrong, then there's two possibilities. One, he's wrong and knows it. That makes him a liar. The second, he's wrong and he doesn't know it. And that makes him mad. And that's why we're left with this conclusion that Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. He's not even worth your time if what he claims about himself isn't true. No good teacher. See, either a con man, madman, or God-man. Those are the options were left. It's interesting that the judgment that he pronounces is eternal separation from himself. Depart from me, I never knew you. This judge will look at us based on our knowledge of him. He will say, I never knew you. It's not gonna be about what did you do. 
It's going to be, did you know me and do I know you? And the judgment is eternal separation from him. It's worth looking at. The sixth area that we see in Jesus' authority is that of the Son of God. The Sermon on the Mount gives a very comprehensive doctrine of God. We see God who is the creator, who is active in the natural order, who knows and cares for even the smallest creatures, the birds, and the most temporary of elements, the grass, which is here today and thrown into the fire. We see that God is king. He rules over his kingdom. And that kingdom has broken into our world. We see God as father. And that's one of the more profound parts of Jesus' theology. Jesus introduces that possibility that because of him, we can have that intimacy with the Father, but he also claimed a very unique relationship with God as my Father. His use of the personal possessive is very important. When he's speaking to the disciples, he refers to God as your Father. When he's speaking of himself, he refers to God as my Father, and he never once refers to God as our Father. Now, you're saying, well, wait a minute, isn't the Lord's Prayer Say, our Father? Yeah, but he gave that to us to pray. Look with me in chapter 11, and I want to read verse 27. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Notice the very unique relationship that Jesus claims with the Father. In the Gospel of John, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus says in chapter 3, verse 16, one of the most famous verses in Scripture, God so loved the world that he sent his only, what's the word? Begotten Son into the world. And this is the distinction that Jesus lays claim to. We can be God's adopted sons and daughters, but only Jesus was God's begotten son. Proceeding from the Father, full of grace and truth. Finally, and ultimately, the sermon as the rest of the gospels clearly make a case for Jesus' authority as God. Recognize how easily Jesus speaks on par with God, exercising divine prerogative. And I want to offer just three glimpses of this. And the first is that Jesus equated his suffering disciples with the prophets and himself with God. Do you remember in the Beatitudes, he comments on the final Beatitude, blessed are those who are persecuted for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then he goes on and says, blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. And then he says, take heart, because that's exactly how they treated the prophets. Now pay careful attention to this. Prophets were persecuted because of their message in speaking for God. Jesus equates his disciples who will bring his message to the world with the prophets who were persecuted and in so doing equates himself with God. 
A second example is where he says, not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, but those who do the will of my Father. And that shows us that Jesus assumed that to obey his words was to do the will of his Father. He actually says, I and my Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. A third example is when he talks about sitting in the position of judge of the human race. The Jewish people understand that there's only one being that is worthy and fit to sit in judgment over the race, and that is its creator. And so the strongest understanding of Jesus' claim to be God himself is that he will be that very judge of our lives. Not a declaration, just the natural fact. Why? Because he was God with us. John 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And that Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the Christ of the Sermon on the Mount. He is not just some wise sage, some good teacher. Unmistakably, the Christ of the Sermon on the Mount is the Savior of the world, the judge of the universe, God in human form. He is our Lord, Lord. Stott concludes, his commentary this way. We cannot escape the implication of all this. The claims of Jesus were indeed put forward so naturally, so modestly and indirectly that many people never even noticed them, but they are there. We cannot ignore them and still retain our integrity. Either they are true or Jesus was suffering from what C.S. Lewis called a rampant megalomania. Can it be seriously maintained, however, that the lofty ethics of the Sermon on the Mount are the product of a deranged mind? It requires a high degree of cynicism to reach that conclusion. The only alternative is to take Jesus at his word and his claims at their face value. In this case, we must respond to his Sermon on the Mount with deadly seriousness, for here is his picture of God's alternative society. These are the standards, the values, the priorities of the kingdom of God. Too often the church has turned away from this challenge and sunk into a bourgeois conformist respectability. Boy, I wish I would come up with phrases like that when I preach. At such times, it is almost indistinguishable from the world. It has lost its saltiness. Its light is extinguished, and it repels all idealists. For it gives no evidence that it is God's new society, which is tasting already the joys and powers of the age to come. Only when the Christian community lives by Christ's manifesto will the world be attracted and God be glorified. So when Jesus calls us to himself, it is to this he calls us, for he is the Lord of the counterculture. Ultimately, it isn't what Jesus taught that was his priority. Jesus called people to follow him, not on the basis of his teaching, but on the basis of his person. 
which was revealed in his teaching. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this most critical of questions that the drama of their biographies of Jesus build up to as the disciples listen to his teaching and watch the miracles and in wonder see his unique relationship with the Father when Jesus turns to them and asks the question that I pose in Jesus' name to you today. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Matthew, Mark, Luke, all point to that pivotal moment of decision as a significant climax on the way to the cross. Because knowing who Jesus was makes his act of redemption effective and true for all of us. John, on the other hand, his whole gospel is summed up in John chapter 20, verse 31. And let's say this together. I have written these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that in believing you may have life in his name. See, it's always been about that. It begins with who Jesus is, and if you can get there, if like Peter you can say you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, then there's a kingdom waiting. It's a good kingdom. We are blessed people. And Christ is over all and in all. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. It would be wrong, I think, to ignore the clarity of the message and not give you an opportunity to answer that question. Jesus is saying to you today, who do you say that I am? How do you answer it right now? How in your heart do you answer it? Have you already said, you are the Christ, you are my Savior, you are the Son of God, you are my Lord? Have you acknowledged your need for that Savior and receive forgiveness of sin? If you have yet to do that, right now in this moment, you can simply surrender to that truth, same way Peter did 2,000 years ago. Declare in your heart that you believe, accept, and surrender to Jesus as God, as your Lord and your Savior. If you want to do that today and leave here as part of that kingdom, would you raise your hand so I can see and pray for you? Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. Thank you. Amen. Thank you. Praise God. I want to encourage those who raise their hand to take a minute and either come up to me or Pastor Lou or someone that you trust here, you know, as part of our church and say, hey, I, I raised my hand today. You should let somebody know, let somebody pray with you and, and help you on your journey. Father, thank you for these who have encountered the God of the sermon, the Christ, the Savior, Jesus, and we together profess Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen.